0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week we are talking about drugs. Uh, I am talking to Kojo Karam, lecturer in law at Birkbeck and author of several books including The War on Drugs and The Global Colour Line. We discuss Sadiq Khan's plans to conduct a review into the legalization of weed, the roots of drug criminalization, the neoliberal origins of the war on drugs, and why decriminalization will save lives. Thank you, as always, for being a valuable listener to our show. And thank you so much to all of our patrons who make the show possible. If you want to sign up to become a patron, you can find us at patreon.com slash pod. There will be a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, then please do consider sharing these episodes on social media. We are at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like, and one that I really liked, is A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist economics by Hedas Thier. Economists regularly promote capitalism as the greatest system ever to grace the planet. Within the same breath, they implore us to leave the job of understanding the magical powers of the markets to the Experts. Despite their efforts to convince us otherwise, many of us have begun to question why this system has produced such vast inequalities and wanton disregard for its own environmental destruction. In this book, the Air provides us with a compelling and accessible explanation. As Bhaskar Sankara puts it, Economists have every incentive to mystify their craft and dress up their political judgments as scientific fact. A People's Guide to Capitalism is a thorough and accessible corrective and sure to be an important primer for generations of activists. Find A People's Guide to Capitalism at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the UK and US receive free shipping on orders over £20 or $25, respectively. Hello, and I'm here with Kojo Karam again. Thank you so much for joining me this week to talk about drug reform. How are you doing today, Kojo?
1: Good, thank you. Thanks for having me again, Grace.
0: Good. No worries. We're going to be talking today about Sadiq Khan's big intervention the other week, accompanied by some rather amusing photos, which sent the internet a little bit wild. Uh, But Sadiq Khan came back from a trip to LA where there was a referendum not that long ago on cannabis legalization, or a vote, sorry, on cannabis legalization. And he is now saying that he wants to conduct a review in London to consider the benefits of doing the same thing here. So why do you think Sadiq has decided to do this now? And what do you think that the review is going to find, Kojo?
1: Um, Well, I think it's really interesting that it seems to be being led by the London mayor when, you know, the situation around drug policy reform should really be a much broader national conversation at the moment in the United Kingdom, I think that, you know, Sadiq's visit to California was a visit to just one of the jurisdictions in the world that have undertaken the full legalization of cannabis. Um, So California did it through a ballot initiative in 2016. But before that, Colorado and Washington, D.C. did it. After California, we've had New York State, we've had Illinois in terms of the United States of America. It's now 18 of the 50 states have legalized cannabis entirely. Many more have legalized it medicinally. And, you know, the next electoral cycle, it's likely to be a majority of states in the USA that have legal recreational cannabis. And then we can think about on national level as well, the entire country of Canada of legalized cannabis, Uruguay of legalized cannabis. The recent German government just announced that they're going to be legalising cannabis as well. We've seen it in Malta. So many jurisdictions in the world undertaking a full-scale reform of their drug policy, not just with cannabis, but with a lot of other drugs. And I think that the London mayor is simply bringing the United Kingdom to this conversation really quite, quite late on a global scale.
0: And, I mean, the big question I think everyone has here is whether or not Sadiq actually has any authority to a think about legalizing weed in london but b even go ahead with a review like this right. and if he doesn't then what can the review actually do
1: well unfortunately i mean he, he doesn't have the the legal powers to be able to legalize or even decriminalize cannabis in the london london region cannabis is criminalized by the misuse of drugs act 1971 and that is you know national legislation but he's you know, does have the power to launch a commission, which is what he's announced. And the commission is simply, you know, to bring together, you know, experts from a variety of different fields to look at the evidence around drug policy reform around the world and specifically around the question of cannabis. And, you know, that evidence could inform national debate and it could obviously put pressure on a very reluctant government, which is still clinging to a kind of 1980s rerun of Reaganite war on drugs policies. You know, we had last year, Boris Johnson, you know, in full police gear doing a drugs morning raid up in Liverpool as though, you know, he's trying to live out some sort of cowboy fantasy. And um, this is simply not how the rest of the world is operating. We're not in the 1980s of, you know, Reagan, crack war. You know, we're not in the era of the war on drugs. The United States of America has a president who's on record saying that they are committed to the legalization of cannabis. It has states like Oregon that have decriminalized not just cannabis, but every other drug that is on available, including up to heroin. And so it's a very different historical moment. The United Kingdom is very much behind the global conversation on this. Sadiq Khan doesn't have the power to be able to really change that Directly, but he does have the power to launch his commission and create a kind of national conversation. I think there is also a, a question about whether he does have the power to essentially facilitate what's known as a diversion scheme. And so that um, we've seen this with Thames Valley Police in the United Kingdom and a few other police forces. Sadiq Khan could let the Metropolitan Police Force know that there isn't a real need to arrest people if you find them with cannabis in their possession, and on a kind of indirect basis, allow a certain form of decriminalisation, but not in terms of a natural legislative basis.
0: Presumably, being able to do that, though, would depend upon the culture of the Met, which, as we know, is not something that is you know particularly... Prone towards taking drug use, and presumably particularly drug use by certain populations, that lightly. So, do you think that's something that he'll actually be able to do, or be able to push through in the Met itself?
1: I mean, it depends. Like you say, on the culture and the new leadership of the Met. I mean, anyone who's been to Non Hill Carnival realizes that the Metropolitan Police Office have a a, a bit of a passion for <laughs> um being able to stop and search. You know, mm. black men. You know, and we know that. Whilst often the debate around stop and search and the national press is orientated around knife crime and, you know, this is a way that we can stop knife crime, 60% of stop and searches are actually for suspicion of drugs. So it's by far and away the majority reason that allows police to stop and search people and we all know the racial disparities.
0: Didn't we hear a while ago that this was actually when police are suspecting and, and stopping and searching people for drug use, the vast majority of times it's literally just because they smell weed?
1: Yeah, so. Which is
0: not a legitimate reason, is it?
1: And it's a reason that you really can't challenge because it seems Mm. so, you know, it's so uh, idiosyncratic. Any police officer could say that I smell weed, and it's not like, you know, you fit a description where you might ask the police officer to radio in that description and you might be able to challenge that on on legitimate grounds. It's something that can allow a certain form of social control without justification. Mm. That really starts to get to the root of why. A policy like the criminalisation of drugs, which we now have the evidence all across the world, doesn't work, hasn't worked since the Misuse of Drugs Act and even since... Prior to that, when it started to become normalised through the UN own Convention on Drugs in 1961, this hasn't created a drug-free world as the UN promised that it would do. In fact, it's led to increasing numbers of drug use, increasing numbers of drug deaths, increasing numbers of people um, suffering the negative externalities that can come with problematic substance use, you know, the transmission of diseases and Mm. such and such. But politicians still continue to insist on it largely because it does facilitate that mechanism of social control, particularly of populations that are seen as problematic, like racial minorities.
0: I'm interested also, you mentioned there the kind of history of the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, some people will be familiar with that history in the US and the way that this was pushed through by you know, the FBI and the government as a way to Criminalize black populations after desegregation. Mm. There obviously is a a unique history of criminalization in the UK as well. Mm. But is there an argument that criminalization was designed to target particular populations in the same way as it was in the US?
1: Um, I think there's definitely a relation between the story of drug criminalization in the United States and what happens globally. You know, that we need to really think about, you know, there's a, a academic Dave Musto, a drug historian who describes drug prohibition as the American experiment. And it's um, really, in many ways, the first major foreign policy intervention that America makes on a global stage when it starts to become an emerging superpower around the turn of the 20th century. Prior to that, when we look at the 19th century and the 18th century, the trade of what we now call drugs, things like cannabis, opium and cocaine, is of course very lucrative commodity trades for the European empires, none more so than the British Empire, which we think about cannabis, had a highly commercial cannabis trade through the colonies in India and Jamaica, and we think about opium, there's a large argument for considering the opium wars fought by Britain in the mid 19th century as being the kind of major, first major war of capitalist globalization, the opening up of China and the uh, annexation of Hong Kong and the creation of this first global market through the insistence of the British Empire to allow its merchants from the East India Company and Jardine Matheson and these other imperial traders to be able to sell opiate within the Chinese jurisdiction. And so Britain has a really interesting history of profiting from the trade of drugs up until the emergence of the United States in the early 20th century, after which the United States's growing hegemony starts to bring the European powers into the sphere of prohibition, which ultimately results in them signing the UN Sun Convention Act in 1961. There's really, you know, the fascinating kind of paradox of all this is that when you read the actual drafting documents of the Sun Convention on Narcotic Drugs, the United Kingdom is very reluctant to sign that at first. It's one of the first, the big holdouts of actually signing up to a system of prohibition because obviously it had a lot of lucrative um, Mm -hmm. global cannabis and opiate trading, trading posts. And So, you know, the actual process of creating the international law that that bans drugs globally, the UN Convention, begins in nineteen forty eight and doesn't end until nineteen sixty one, as the European powers one by one slowly decide to give up their drug monopolies and sign up to this um to this new convention. And then now, in twenty twenty two we have the world in which the country that kind of drove the prohibition of drugs for like you mentioned a lot of its own internal racial politics. You know, we can see this with things like, you know, the New York Times article that came out the same year that the United States criminalized drugs um nineteen fourteen and there's a New York Times article which is headlines Negro Cocaine Fiends and New Southern Menace and this whole story mm-hmm. about how cocaine is turning black people in the South not only disobedient, but And this is not an exaggeration. This is what the article says. It claims that it's making them impervious to bullets. So this was the (laughs) political discourse in the United States at the time. It criminalizes drugs. It globalizes it. Places like the United Kingdom eventually sign up to its prohibition, to its war on drugs mantra. And now in 2022, we have the country that kind of drove this, moving to a much more progressive understanding of drug policy, legalizing cannabis, creating safe consumption rooms for opiate use decriminalising a whole host of drugs in places like Oregon. And then we have the United Kingdom still playing the old tune that the United States has now moved away from in order for its own interests.
0: So if criminalization had a lot to do with who controlled the drug trade, Mm -hmm. is there an argument to say that now that there are plentiful opportunities for making money from the production of drugs within the US and the US has a lot of client governments all over the world in areas where drugs are being produced that there is now apparently an opportunity to make money from this and that's why we're seeing a change in in the environment or is that too crudely materialist
1: i think we can't you know we can't deny the driving factor of the potential revenue that could be accrued from you know let's take cannabis as the most you know the most egregious example the one that's gone furthest in terms of creating a global commercial commodities industry according to bloomberg the global legal cannabis market now is estimated to be worth 91 billion dollars by 2028 and so you know that kind of money is going to motivate some people to get some laws changed you know if you're in a state in the united states right now that doesn't have legal cannabis within your jurisdiction. You can believe that a lot of these incredibly lucrative cannabis companies, you know, we can think about Aurora, we can think about the way in which some of the other just major corporations, generally Amazon, Uber, a lot of the tobacco companies are using cannabis as a moment to rebrand themselves, like Philip Morris and British Tobacco. They're entering into these spaces. And if you exist in a jurisdiction that doesn't have legal recreational cannabis, your campaign for legislative reform is being funded by those companies right now. And so we have to recognize that commercial imperative. And, you know, this is something that also is driving the conversation around the change in cannabis laws here in the United Kingdom. You know, there's a kind of weird world in which the supporters of change in drug policy in the United Kingdom are racial justice organizations, economic justice organizations, but they're also the Adam Smith Institute. They're also City AM newspaper. They're also the kind of cutting edge of neoliberal financialization that have always thought, you know, this is a potentially lucrative market and why aren't we investing in that? And so I think that that's why it's so important that we not only enter the conversation around The legalization of drugs and the changing status of particularly cannabis but people on the left enter it with a motivation to ensure that whatever comes after prohibition isn't simply a big corporate giveaway to philip morris and uber cannabis but instead has at its heart racial and economic reparation for the for the devastation that's been impacted on huge communities around the world um not only thinking about prison rates we know that according to the latest ministry of justice statistics that imprisonment for drug offenses continues to be the largest reason why prisoners on remand are actually imprisoned 27 percent, the number one reason that's before we even think about how you know the criminalization of drugs leads to crimes such as theft and other issues we can think about the stop and search statistic we already mentioned we can think about the way in which um Drugs and alcohol issues are one of the leading causes of school exclusions in the United Kingdom. The Child cue story that we all read about, unfortunately, so recently, is just another example of how drug policy facilitates this kind of devastation on particular communities. And so if we're going to move beyond criminalization, if we're going to move beyond prohibition, I think it needs to be done with the motivation for reparative and social justice at its heart and just one quick story i think to really emphasize this new york state i think is a really interesting example because that was going to legalize cannabis in 2019 and the legalization was actually blocked not by the kind of conservative or religious right but in fact by the progressive left who said that at the moment, the laws have been written in such a way that there isn't enough reparative justice for the people who've had their lives devastated by criminalization. And so the actual legalization process was delayed for a further two years, whilst they extracted incredible provisions from the actual process of legalization. And so now we have a condition within the New York state legislation where there is an aim of getting 50 percent of the cannabis license that they give out to what's known as social equity applicants which is people from black and minority communities people who've been in prison for um drug offences or people whose families have been in prison for drug offences. Um, there's a commitment towards creating an incubator which can help people from disadvantaged communities learn how to navigate the bureaucracy of opening up a cannabis cultivation site or a cannabis dispensary. And there's a commitment to redirecting the tax revenue, huge amount of tax revenue that can be collected through cannabis. California surpassed over a billion dollars in tax revenue from cannabis in just two years. New York State, through the pressure that was put on by left activists and left politicians have been able to be committed that that tax revenue in in New York is going to be directed to the communities that were over policed and that were disadvantaged Mm. through the war on drugs. And so that's what can happen when the left enter into the space. And if we want to look at places like Nevada or Colorado, we can actually have a look at a much worse story when it is simply a corporate giveaway.
0: This raises an interesting point, right? And you mentioned that the coalition here includes some very, you know, neoliberal organizations. Mm. You also mentioned the fact that the war on drugs was really stepped up in the nineteen eighties by new neoliberal governments um, that saw it as, you know, a priority when they came to power. Mm. It raises a question here about the neoliberal attitude towards drug use, because you would think looking at core neoliberal texts and neoliberal theory that most economists and policymakers would say create a market for the thing and structure it in such a way as to minimize the negative externalities of drug use, Mm -hmm. but allow people to kind of take responsibility and make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. Why did the war on drugs end up being such a central part of neoliberalism?
1: I think this is always a really interesting question because it's it was a central part of the kind of neoliberal governing mechanism. We can see that from Reagan to Bush Sr. to Thatcher, all of which, you know, really nailed their colours to the mast in terms of, you know, just say no, you know, the war on drugs, you know, we're we're going door to door to door, as um, Bush was saying, in terms of fighting this really kind of guerrilla warfare against, you know, this imagined drug threat you know, the idea drugs are the number one threat in America today and crack babies and all of that story. Um, so it became a key part of the governing mechanism of some of the most neoliberal governments, you know, within the North Atlantic world, who at the same time were advocating deregulation and the opening of markets and free trade in other areas. But at the same time, for a lot of the kind of neoliberal disciples the the kind of intellectual acolytes of the movement people like Milton Friedman or we can think about you know older conservatives like William Buckley they've always been in support of the legalization of drugs for those reasons that you mentioned the idea that the state shouldn't be intervening in people's personal use and also the potential profits that can be accrued from that but I think the way in which the war on drugs was weaponized in that era of neoliberalization, You know, they really kind of run parallel to each other, you know, being accelerated in the nineteen seventies through Nixon and then really reaching that kind of apex in the nineteen eighties through Reagan and the United Kingdom Thatcher. I think the way in which those two run together, I think, points a little bit to some of the differences between the ideology of neoliberalism, what neoliberalism tells the world that it is, which is about freedom, which is about openness, which is about open markets and exchange, and the actual governing mechanism of neoliberalism that I think people like the political economist and historian Quince Lobodian has really emphasized about the necessary element of kind of statecraft and regulation and control and disciplining that is required with neoliberalism. That it's as much to do with regulation, it's as much to do with laws that are weaponized than it is about the removing of laws and the cutting of red tape and the opening up of markets. And I think the drug laws really show how there's a necessary production of population that is required in order to have the kind of idealized neoliberal society and that there is a a weaponization of something like the international laws on drugs that allow social control of particularly problematic populations that can allow for the construction of the idealized market society. And so I think what we want to be careful for now that the United States seems to be moving away from that system of prohibition and you know there is a very real chance that by the next electoral presidential electoral cycle there could be federal legislation that legalizes cannabis all across the united states we don't think the united states is moving away from neoliberalization and so i think the question that we want to be thinking about those who are committed to social justice from the position of the left we want to be thinking about how might the laws that legalize cannabis or legalize drugs actually be weaponized to do the same kind of social control that the prohibition or the laws on prohibition actually facilitated i think one of the most concerning statistics we might think about is that after colorado legalized cannabis for recreational use and because it was the first state to do this It didn't do this with a kind of left agenda. It did it on a very neoliberal basis. It talked about the money that could be made. It didn't have any commuting of sentences. It didn't have, you know, any any, um, erasure of criminal records. And so there's people whose lives are still devastated, you know, who can't get jobs or can't get access Mm -hmm. to their children for selling cannabis. And then down the road, there's, you know, a hedge fund-owned cannabis dispensary farm making billions of pounds doing the exact same thing. That's the situation in Colorado. And after legalization in 2012, what they actually saw was that the arrest rate for cannabis-related offenses for white young people, because cannabis is still illegal for people below 18, the arrest rate for um, cannabis offenses for white people between the ages of 10 and 17 fell by 9%. But the arrest rate for black young people for the same age actually rose by 52% and rose by 22% 22% for Hispanic use. And so, you know, legalization can be weaponized in order to shift wealth to institutions like multinational corporations and can allow a kind of a secondary system of social control to be imposed upon those minority communities who are really at the kind of cutting edge of the 50-year war on drugs. And that's what I think we want to be careful of.
0: Now, Labour MPs are reportedly furious with Sadiq Khan over his plans here. Presumably not for the reasons that you have just outlined. Mm-hmm. Why is the rest of the Labour Party so concerned? And what is Keir Starmer's history on this issue, both as uh, Director of Public Prosecutions and in politics?
1: Yeah, I think that this is a really, a really difficult thing to kind of grapple our heads around. You know, now, for me, the Labour Party is one of the only, if not maybe the only, social democratic party in the West to have never engaged seriously with this question of drug policy reform. The Democratic Party of the United States are now far behind it. The SDP in Germany, one of the first things they did following their entrance into power and coalition was legalise cannabis. Even the French Socialist Party have had a candidate in Benoit Hamon who was committed towards the legalisation of cannabis. And as much as you know, we would be willing to criticize someone like Keir Starmer for his lack of engagement on this question. I mean, worse than lack of an engagement this question in an interview he did with Sky in February of last year. He was openly proud about his his record of having prosecuted many, many drug gangs, as he said in his time as being director of public prosecution, and completely dismissed any kind of reform of the drug laws in the United Kingdom, which are statistically by their own standards failing year on year we could criticize Keir Starmer for that and we rightfully should do but we also need to recognize that even during the tenure of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and Diane Abbott there was no serious engagement in this question of drug policy reform in those years as well and so what is it about the British Labour Party that makes it so reluctant to engage with such a clear issue of criminalization Over policing and disadvantagement of working class and racial minority communities. Ash Sarkar, not so long ago, she was talking about the kind of roots of the Labour Party coming out of this kind of early 20th century kind of Christian reformism and the moralism Mm. of the temperance movement and the way in which that synthesized with a particular version of of, of Labourist politics that. You know when we think about that kind of reformism is that part of the of the genesis of the labor party's reluctance towards engaging with this question because it is seen as hedonistic it is seen as decadent you know it is seen as Something that we can point the moral finger at the conservatives, you know, at the last conservative leadership election, I think it was a hundred percent by the time it got to the last five of the candidates were all admitting to drug use themselves. You know, Rory Stewart talking about smoking opium in the Himalayas or whatever. And, you know, Jeremy Hunt talking about cannabis and obviously Boris Johnson and Michael Gove talking about his cocaine use. So, you know, it's seen as something that's kind of decadent and point to the hypocrisy of the Conservative Party that they're able mm. to, you know, criminalise young black people in Tottenham or Hansworth or Toxteth. But, you know, at Eton or at, you know, at Oxford, they should be able to take as much drugs as they want. It's part of their coming of age story. And so I think that there's an interesting position where in the United Kingdom, there's nobody really kind of pushing the drug policy reform conversation forward at the kind of national level i think the greens have done some really good stuff on this question and i know that um in in scotland there's a lot of interest around having really progressive initiatives around the drug deaths the from opiates issue that is a real crisis in scotland at the moment by far and away largest drug Mm. death rates in europe and you know across some scottish labor politicians but you know we also a lot of SNP politicians are also now thinking about the ideas around safe consumption rooms and ideas around places where we can allow for people who are going to be using heroin anyway to be able to do it in a safe and um, sanitary environment that won't allow the transmission of diseases, won't allow for the potential overdoses and issues that you know is causing so much tragedy up here north of the border. And so there is certain conversations, but with the main two political parties. Labour and the Conservatives in the United Kingdom, they are way behind the global conversation and are really talking about drugs in a language that belongs to the 1980s.
0: Mm, This is the legacy of the Labour Party owing perhaps more to Methodism than to Marxism once again. Yeah, that's a very interesting answer to that question, I think. What is the evidence surrounding legalisation that we have elsewhere in the world? And also, the evidence from places that have legalized not just weed, but all drugs. So you mentioned Oregon, but also places like Portugal, the opioid crisis that is taking place, as you mentioned, in some parts of Scotland, in the U S and various other parts of the world is obviously destroying plenty of lives. And at least in the U S some of that is completely, you know, is, is through legal drugs or drugs that are produced by large pharmaceutical companies. Is there Evidence to suggest that actually legalizing all drugs and allowing people to, as you just said, take them in a safe environment is going to solve a lot of problems that we currently have resulting from the illegal drugs trade. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a really good question. I think, first of all, it's important to stress a slight difference between decriminalisation and legalisation, because there's nowhere in the world that's legalised all drugs in terms of allowed them to become a legal commodity that can be sold and can be accrued for profit. But there's many places like Oregon and like Portugal that have decriminalised all drugs. And so by decriminalisation, you're making it no longer a criminal offence to have possession and to to have use of it, but it's still a criminal offence to call cultivate and to supply it but it's no longer a criminal offense to possess and to use it it's now like a civil matter you know similar to you know a parking fine that we might get or not paying your tv license something like that you know if you do have a found with you know heroin in these states um you will be not arrested you won't be you know i mean Taken to a police station, you will end up in prison, where you know the drug use in prison is even higher. Mm. So um, that's an example of how difficult it is to control drugs. If you want to control drugs, we can't even control their um, ability to access people's ability to access and use them in a literal prison. Never mind keeping them out of the rest of the whole world. But rather than do that in these places, you might be directed towards. Kind of health and social care facilities. If you are seen as someone who's struggling with problematic use, or if you feel you're someone who's struggling with problematic use, or it's just something that's just not going to be dealt with on a very substantial basis. And so that frees up all the resources that are put into policing, that are put into surveillance, that are put into imprisonment of people who use particular substances and allows them to be put into rehabilitation services, into safe consumption rooms, into heroin assisted treatment all things that are either non-existent or underfunded in the UK, because we continue to play that old game of the kind of 1980s war on drugs. And by decriminalizing substances, we do then create this opportunity for things like safe consumption rooms. Um, I don't know if maybe maybe many of your listeners followed a um, former long-term heroin user in Scotland, Peter creakan who over the last year was so horrified by the drug deaths, opiate crisis in Scotland, that he just got a van, and started creating his own safe consumption room, going around to places where people would be using in street corners and back alleys, setting up a van and allowing people to use use drugs within his van where if they had dirty needles, they could get access to clean needles. If they were suffering an overdose, he could administer naloxone to them, which is a life-saving drug, and is probably re- responsible for saving a huge amount of lives during the process of this experiment and just essentially challenged the authorities to try and arrest them and to restrict them, which they, which they didn't. And so that's an example of what can happen when we remove the policing and criminal elements from the actual governing of, of drugs, and that's what decriminalisation is. Legalisation, which is what's happening with cannabis, is the creation of essentially another legal commodities market, making a drug, this time cannabis, something that can be sold like alcohol, like tobacco, like coffee, like sugar. And in the US, that has happened across 18 states recreationally. So people can create cannabis dispensaries, coffee shops, where you can go and buy edibles, or you can buy vapes, or you can buy you know cannabis to be smoked. And, you know, people can open up cultivation sites where they can grow them, um, where they can produce them. People can have all these different roles in this new industry. And there, some of the, the changes that happen, this is a relatively recent change, much more recent than decriminalization, which has happened, you know, for, for decades now in, in Portugal since the 2000. Legalization's only started happening in California in colorado 's the earliest place since two thousand and twelve california two thousand and sixteen new york two thousand and twenty one and so there 's not huge amounts of evidence in terms of the social changes, but what we do know are things that like uh, like I mentioned earlier, the huge amounts of money that could be made if we 're talking about it in those kind of crude financial terms. California as a state over a billion dollars in tax revenue. We do know that the drugs that are used in the legal dispensaries tend to replace the drugs that are produced through the illegal market. So we know that in Colorado, after five years of legalization, 90% of the cannabis market that was being used by people was the one that was being supplied through the regulated legal industry, not through the black market. And then we also know that one of the other big advantages that comes with legalization is the regulation for consumer safety. You know, people are not no longer consuming drugs. They don't know where they produce, don't know what's inside of them they're producing drugs that have a certain particular you know pharmaceutical threshold that they're growing and so there's a lot of you know benefits that we can see but for me i think as somebody looking at this question in terms of global racial economic justice i think there's also a lot of opportunities and questions that we want to really wrestle with if we're addressing it from a kind of left perspective i don't want to put forward the idea that i think legalization this magic bullet that's going to make everything automatically better i think it can do if we think about things like global supply chains you know one big issue that has come up is that um in places like canada in order to push back against the moral outrage of the legalization of of cannabis one of the things that the canadian government did with the cannabis act of 2018 was to say that All the cannabis that's sold within Canada will be grown in Canada. It will only be produced in Canada. And actually we will ban the importation of any cannabis that might be grown in Jamaica or in Mexico or in all these other places in the global south that have supplied the illegal market. And for me, that's, you know, that's essentially, um, creating a a kind of capture of a major lucrative commodity by a global North power that cuts off potential lines of, of production and of wealth that might flow to the global South if it was structured in a different way. And so I think that these kind of imperatives around racial justice, around access for global South producers and around the um, erasure of the impact that criminalization had upon people. And so not just saying, Oh, we're going to create opportunities for black people to be able to enter this new lucrative cannabis trade which is important but also thinking about the person who might have got a cannabis conviction you know in 1992 but still can't leave the country because of that cannabis conviction if we're going to legalize it that needs to be erased straight off the bat and so these are some of the the imperatives that i think can really change with legalization not simply just legalization by itself
0: Koje, thank you so much for joining me this week. That is all we have time for, but I'm sure we could have gone on for a lot longer. Thank you, as always, for being a regular guest on the show. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon.
1: Thanks for having me, Grace.